This podcast was made possible by the ALF Network, with a special thanks to our Leadership Circle members and our 2020 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Aris Communications, Friends of Sing Kung, Friends of Webb McKinney, Lisa and Matt Sonsini, HP Inc., and Deloitte. We thank you all for your support. Welcome to The Dialogue. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane. Homelessness, a seemingly irretractable problem in Silicon Valley that despite good intentions and public nonprofit sector efforts, grew out of control over two decades. In 2011, both the city of San Jose and Santa Clara County recognized that the approach to solving homelessness needed to shift dramatically in order to get better results. A cross-sector systems change effort emerged, putting housing first and setting the stage for major public and private investments that would forge a pathway home for thousands of homeless neighbors. Joining me today are key players in the systems change effort, Destination Home CEO Jen Loving of Class 25, Santa Clara County Deputy County Executive Key Lee of Class 37, Jackie Morales-Ferrand of Urbanism Class 34, and Cisco's Public Benefit Investment Portfolio Manager, Aaron Connor. Let's listen. So thanks so much for being here today with us, um, all of you. This is uh, such an incredible story that you've all played a role and been a part of. And I just want to back up a little bit. Let's set the stage in terms of how uh, this system of care on homelessness looked, say, 15 years ago. What what did it look like? Uh, how were people treated? Uh, what what was the system and the and the path they went through? Why don't we start with Jack and go to Key? Just describe what the landscape looked like for for this. So the landscape, the city side was we were really managing homelessness, which were means to me that we were really just focusing on kind of the day to day issues that people had that were on the streets and. You know, we had a very tiny team that kind of went out when somebody complained about a homeless person, they would rush out and they would see what's the issue, try to get them into a shelter. Um, but we were not working on housing per se. That was not our priority. We were, we were working on building as many units as, units as we possibly could. Um, and really saw them as two very distinct efforts. There was a homeless team that was responding to the people who were living on the streets in a very limited way. And then there was a housing production side that built housing, uh, but the two didn't talk to each other or think about the housing side, didn't have a conversation with the homeless side to say, well, what do you need in order to house the people that you're dealing with? All the services pieces really ran through our shelters and we were really about how do we provide more service in the shelter side uh, more than anything else? How do we access people on the shelter side and help people who are in the shelters? We were had very limited conversation with the county, although there were blue ribbon panels and commissions that were kind of t linking the city and the county together but on a staff level there was nobody we were talking to um, about homelessness 
and Key, you might be able to answer this uh, as well, just in terms of the numbers of homeless people, say 15 years ago. I mean, was there an active count? Was there an understanding of what the, uh, what the, pro- the scope of the problem? Yeah, I think the first count might have been in 2007 or it might have been in 2005, but um, sort of people's understanding of the, the scope of the problem uh, was, was somewhat limited. The sort of um, idea about what the fundamental uh, causes uh, was, uh, was different um, and uh, equally important. Uh, uh, or more important, the sort of an understanding or agreement on what the most effective strategies were to uh, reduce and then prevent it um, uh, didn't exist. And, you know, just to add a little bit to Jackie's comments, you know, if you were to go back to 2005, the system was really built around the community-based organizations, these nonprofits that had formed by themselves uh, fought and scrapped together funding, sometimes some city funding, some state funding, some county funding, but we really saw it as a sort of a, an issue addressed by, quote, charity, um, and nonprofit organizations were sort of left to their own devices with some support um, uh, from government entities. Um, so really, I, I would say in 2005, um, there was people were being helped. There were some effective solutions, but as a county, countywide, as a system, there was a lack of unified leadership um, and partnership. And uh, it was unclear what roles people should have, who bore certain responsibilities. Um, and um, uh, well, there might be ideas about who should be doing what, those entities didn't sort of accept Abilities. So uh, if you just go, go tell people what they should be doing, it's usually not, you know, if they don't sort of uh, accept it, you know, acknowledge that they have a responsibility, it becomes very difficult. Um, because this sort of lack of unified leadership, um, there's sort of not a lot of partnership, uh, not a lot of uh, specific goals being set. Um, and then again, just uh, not a lot of um, agreement upon the different strategies. And uh, perhaps most important is not a lot of supportive housing uh, being built. I think um, in our reports to the board on our supportive housing development, the housing bond, we usually show what sort of how much supportive housing existed in 2005, I think that's, no, 2015, (laughs) sorry, Um, and I think in 2015, I thought, I think there was something like 150 to 300 total units of supportive housing that sort of had ever been built. Um, uh, so it's just amazing um, how people thinking about building housing just for homeless people in a large scale as the fundamental solution. Um, while people may have thought it, they we never even dreamed that it was even possible. Right. Because you didn't have the partnerships that existed to allow for that. And I would add one more thing. The strategy that many housing providers and homeless providers were really focused on 15 years ago was this uh, 
approach that said you you were graduating from one housing solution to another. Mm. So you might live in a shelter, and if you were doing well in the shelter, we'd put you in a transitional housing program where you would be given two years to do something, and then if and there were rules to follow your housing and your ability to stay in the housing was really predicated on your agreeing to participate in programs. And if you were successful in that program, then maybe you graduated into an affordable housing site as well. But there was this belief that people had to transition into these different phases in order to get that final reward of permanent housing. Interesting. So Jen, when did Destination Home come into the picture? Just uh, what I'm hearing is lots of, lots of, you know, siloed efforts, but not a lot of coordination, which feels like what, what Destination Home was, was formed to, uh, to help coordinate. Yeah, you know, uh, Destination Home was one of, was the um, end result of a blue ribbon task force, um, you know, that, that uh, really, you know, what Jackie and Keir are describing is a, just a la- complete lack of leadership, right? A lack of responsibility and a lack of leadership from the system. Uh, uh, Key and I both were on the services side at the time period that you're describing, right? We're working in shelters, working in transitional programs. Um, we're seeing sort of, uh, it's like the Wild West. <laughs> you know, there, no one's responsible, no one locally the main funding source was the federal government. That was pathetic, right? And and sort of a plan. So so we weren't, you know, the the elected officials and saw that as well. And the mayor at the time, Mayor Reed, came together with someone on the board of supervisors, uh, Supervisor Don Gage, and they formed a blue ribbon task force. And they got a bunch of uh, figureheads to sit around and talk about like, what are we going to do? And it was good because. Uh, the out the outcropping of that effort was really it was pretty simple. I remember Mayor Reed always saying, "We got to shift from managing to ending homelessness." And so they uh, created that a public private people on this group, and they ended up saying, "We're going to create this entity called Destination Home, and they're going to bring everybody together." Like, okay, we're good, right? And then they hired they funded it for like one person tucked under the United Way, and this is in like the year what, 2009. Mm. And in uh, 2010, I got a call from uh, Leslie Corsilia, who used to be the director of housing for the city of San Jose, the job that Jackie is in now. And she said something along the lines of destination home is not, is not working. Um, I want you to come help us, come help on this effort. If you can't fix it, it's dead. You know, like, like that, you know, it's not working. Right. And I had thought at the, at the time prior that if there was an a opportunity to be had, then the opportunity would be in engineering and fostering the political will to really, and you know, people use that word collaborate and it, it's like almost a garbage word. You know what I mean? Like, what does that really mean? Talking to each other is not really collaborating. You know, what does it mean? to like really work together across systems. And right around that same time, there had been that cool new research from Stanford around collective impact Mm -hmm. and that idea. And I remember reading this and I, I, Key, I don't know if you remember this, but I'm pretty sure you must've been one of the first people. I'm like, read this article because it it wasn't describing homelessness, but it was describing everything about homelessness and how to do something about it. You know, you have a, a, uh, issue, a crisis, a humanitarian crisis that doesn't have a single owner like water, or hunger, you know, homelessness. 
and and you have all these different people who are supposed to be doing something, but how do you get everyone working together for maximum benefit? And really the benefit needs to be for the people themselves, right? And I don't think consulting homeless people was a thing then. We as practitioners were never consulted. That Blue Ribbon Commission happened without any service providers even a part of it, right? Mm -hmm. Probably because they thought that in some ways we were part of the problem and then we probably were. And, and so, you know, we ushered in this new day, which was uh, really saying what would it look like if we had mutually reinforcing strategies, meaning if the city and the county and the housing authority and the services partners all agreed to the same premise of let's permanently house people and let's measure how fast we do it, how long it takes us to house people. Do they get better? Like, do they stay in their homes after? And like, what does that look like? What are the conditions for that success? pay for that together, measure it, right? And if we're right about our hypothesis, and this is just housing first, which was sort of a national movement that was also happening around that same time, uh, then could we do more of it? And so, because, you know, as a service provider, we could help as many people as we could. And I'll say when I was working at what's now, it's called Home First, but it was called Emergency Housing Consortium, we helped a ton of people, but we weren't making a dent because the system wasn't changing. It was like if you're at the very end of a, of a broken river filled with systemic racism and white supremacy and all gentrification and all of these issues that we now have much more um, ease of words for, right? But then was just like, what? Um, it was just really just trying to get people out of this mess, right? Instead of stopping the mess. And, and then you know, we started by this movement and we've been calling it a movement deliberately of bringing everyone together around the same set of goals. And uh, I think along the way, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, stop Suzanne, or you want me to- Go ahead. Well, I'll say that we, you know, so we started by housing people. We did the cost of homelessness study, which was like proving how much money was being wasted, not solving homelessness. That provided fuel, right? And then like the miracle of miracles was measure A in 2016. And the willing to put, because we understood that there was an intervention to solve housing to Key's point, a hundred of these units that we needed and we needed thousands and thousands. We understood how much money we were wasting, not addressing homelessness and how there's a better way we were proving that there was a better way. The clients, homeless people themselves were never ever the problem, right? They wanting to be housed, staying housed, you know, taking care, fixing. The problem was extreme poverty, right? Extreme neglect, system failure, right? So how do you solve so that? That's it's just such a monumental chain, right? I mean, the words that you said, Chuck Reed said about shifting from managing to ending is simple, but it's not, right? That is a huge shift, culture shift. And um, I'm curious what, you know, uh, Jackie and, and Jen, I mean, what kind of pushback did you get internally, whether at the city or county or, you know, I'm just thinking the whole nonprofit sector that had been dealing with this in a particular way, was this kind of overhaul of how the problem was dealt with welcomed or what kind of pushback did you get and how did you overcome that? The nonprofits were, it was threatening, right? It was like, we already have scary funding. You're going to come in, you're going to intervene. You're going to mess with our stuff. And I think it was uh, a personality coming from as a peer to those folks to really being willing to be like, we can fight about this if you want to, but you know, as well as I do that this is not working. It's not working. If we could just try this more, there will be more. 
And I think that the real beauty was, uh, and the and the and the importance was the city and the county primarily at first, and now Cisco, and now Housing Authority, and now others. But at the beginning, the city and the county being willing to stand next to us, next shoulder to shoulder, and be like, "We're going to try a different way." And that means contracts are different, funding is different. We're going to collaborate on outcomes, and we sit in community with all of the players all the time. I don't know, uh, Key or Jackie, what you remember, but man, those early days, we were constantly sitting in dialogue. We would fight. There was crying. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this was a year or two of hard work getting people to see, A, we really mean it. We're going to bring more to the sector. We're going to help people better. The, the main shift was really saying, we're going to have one list of people where we house people. Because before it was really, truly so unfair, meaning uh, somebody shows up at, at place A or B and they show up enough times or they get ingratiated with the team or whatever, and then a scarce housing resource becomes available and that's who would get it, right? There was no way of deciding. Prioritizing vulnerability, the, the sickest, the people that are going to die without this support, without this help that we were leaving to die. That's where we decided we were going to start with the hardest to serve. That was a game changer and that was hard yeah. for people. That that meant that they had to take people that were not their mm -hmm. clients. And we never talk that way anymore, but man, that occupied a lot of spaces. Jackie, how were you able to tell this at the city? I mean, was it something that was embraced uh, or did you get pushed back and how did you navigate that? You know, I would say our hardest uh, sales pitch was to the development community. So the housing department had been the number one funder of housing development in the county. We had, we have the largest portfolio of deed restricted um, affordable housing, yet very, as we've already talked about, very few of those apartments were set aside for homeless people. And so when we started having conversations with the development community, which was to say, you know, we would like to now move into this arena. I got a little bit of pushback internally. We're not ready. Uh, then I became the director and suddenly we're ready because I could just say we're ready. And then from, uh, again, on the side, it, it was more that developers were saying, okay, we'll do it. Yeah. But we want to do five units in our development. Mm. And we don't want to do any more. So they were putting caps very low caps on what they were willing or yeah. wanting to do. Um, and so as we did on the provider side, we did on the development side. We brought developers together. We had facilitated meetings from San Francisco to talk about like, how was that system working? We asked them, what did you fear? Uh, they were worried about how they would get commitments to provide the services piece if we were funding the side. So we tried to address concerns. We tried to provide support on the new model. Uh, and then we said, we're going to have to have minimums because we can't, you know, at some point we had to draw the line, right? But we also had to work with people and create you know, systems that would actually work for them as well. And we really did their coordination and their feedback because uh, we have a bumpy start. When you're doing something new and different, you have to live through that it's not going to necessarily be perfect and the system is going to be, to be refined. And so I think 
while there was probably frustration, people really hung in there to um, work through the system. Um, and then I personally called people and said, I need you to be the first one uh, to do this as 100% because we have to show that. It that quote about like a small committed group of individuals, like there's nothing more true than this movement because it took Jackie doing that and Key doing like the amount of fragility involved with wanting to just simply end suffering was like wild. And it and that actually, frankly, continues to this day. The, the amount of hurdles that are placed every move beyond the most basic thing really shows me how deeply ingrained white supremacy is in every aspect of our culture because it is so fear-based in making the most basic sensical changes to, to change is hard. <laughs> change is hard. Change is expensive too. And, and I want to just uh, ask real quick, you know, folks that are talking about systems change as a way to, um, you know, look at this disruption that we're experiencing right now in COVID and say, how do we build something better? Um, it is, it's, it's not inexpensive to, to sit just the, the, the relationship investing and everything you're talking about, Jackie and Jen and Key uh, is substantial. So who invested in the effort of Destination Home and of the community plan to end homelessness and, and all of this? Was it tough to get that investment or was it I mean, were people ready? At the beginning, really, truly the first year and getting this plan going, I think we had $300,000. So uh, clearly that we didn't stay with only that amount of money, but that's where we started. And, and I think, uh, there were a couple of really amazing early things that happened. And one of them was the newest at the time, the newest supervisor was supervisor, Mike Wasserman. And he was uh, coming in and filling the seat for supervisor Gage, who had been like the architect of creating destination. Hall. And so supervisor Gage had said to, to Mike, this is yours now. You have to do something about this. And and Supervisor Wasserman had not had an experience with homelessness. I think he ran a baseball card store before he got elected and he lives in Los Gatos. So this was not an issue area for him. And so one of the things we, I met with him, and I think, um, I actually think I was his very first meeting in his elected role. And one of the things he said to me that was so important was, if you want more resources, you got to prove to me that there's a financial argument that makes sense. And I said to him, uh, we can't tell you that because your system doesn't tell us how much the services cost or doesn't integrate all of the homeless data. And that's one of the main problems. So it's not me telling you, right? It's you demanding that your system tells us. And he did that. And when he did that, he wrote a referral, said, I need to know how much it costs that we're spending on homelessness. That was a game changer because it compelled that data study and then forever started to put price tags on what we were already spending. We're spending half a billion dollars every year, not ending homelessness. So when we had that data, that was a great call to action because people are like, oh man, like we're all, it's like, I, cause I kept saying, we might as well put a half a billion dollars in the floor and set it on fire, you know, for as much homelessness as we're ending. And that's a lot of money. That really helped. And that, that credit goes to Supervisor Wasserman. And then, of course, to Key for um, navigating what was that custody was, I mean, I don't know how many lives that took off of, how many he has left. But um, that was extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. But you have to make the case. Yeah. You have to make the case. It's a financial case. It's a, it's a moral case. 
but 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 it's big to your point, Suzanne. It's expensive, so you got to look at it from all the sides. So I want to jump to uh, Aaron here in just a minute and the the tremendous impact that it's had in this conversation, this issue. But before we do. Uh, which came about in 2016. And I just have to reference back, given this is an ALF podcast, that Jen is my ALF classmate, and I will never forget the day, <laughs> and she knows what I'm going to say, where we were sitting in a alarm and ALF class, and we burst out, almost couldn't contain it, saying, we need half a billion dollars to solve this problem. We need half a billion dollars to solve homelessness. And there was such a... Um, determination and tenacity in her voice. And it really, uh, as it turns out, was was maybe not the very beginning, but the beginning of a journey, uh, part of the beginning of a journey of Measure A coming to fruition and just that, that absolute, um, you put a stake in the ground that day is how it looked to me. Um, so talk to us, Key and Jen, just about how did that Measure A movement build and happen and uh, what's the impact it's, it's had to date. Key, why don't you take a turn here? Sure. Um, the story uh, Measure A, uh, you know, it, it usually starts uh, with, um, you know, late in 2016 on the ballot, but I, I think it really started in late 2014 and in 2015, you know? Um, just started to say, hey, let's try to house a thousand of the most vulnerable people back in 2012. That seemed like an astronomical, unachievable goal back then. Um, but uh, we did it, and we knew that it was just sort of the beginning. And we knew that in order to m really make a change, we had to, you know, invest in the construction of housing that is affordable and set aside for these, uh, these groups, groups. And the board actually put together this um, housing task force in 2015, which was um, on my list of one of the most difficult things to do next to the cost study. Um, and I remember saying, and, you know, we came, we met seven months and we came up with all these recommendations and towards the end there, you know, there was a point I said, look, to my bosses, I said, like, if we're going to really address this, we need to build units and, and um, to make a recommendation around getting a ton of money to build it. And um, no one knew what the possibility was. No one knew like how we were able to get the money. But the key was that we basically allow the administration allowed for that recommendation to go forward, that we did have to have a set aside, a significant one. And then from there, it really sort of took off. Supervisors began to sort of talk about possibilities, and that really culminated into the Measure A campaign and all sorts of other things. Um, I don't know if Jen wants to add it's to that. It's incredible coalition building. I mean, I just remember the number of people that got involved so quickly and uh, how, how public it was. I'll say that... Um you know, that, that, you know, for, so the county, again, the supervisor Chavez, um, Cindy's leadership on that. I remember that where, where Suzanne, the half a dollar conversation happened. I thought that meant the private sector. I was beating my head against the wall. Didn't, I couldn't figure that out when Cindy says, Hey, what about, uh, what about, what do you think about a ballot measure? And, and that, and what I'll say about the her heroism in that was, uh, 
proposing a housing measure, that's okay. Like that, it wasn't so revolutionary, right? Because housing goes crisis, we're talking about all the time. Um, but but she, and, and but what we thought was gonna happen was this was gonna happen as part of like a transportation measure. There had been talking with others. And in my opinion, it would have been just then a vanilla housing measure, right? Because it would have been put on by like a city or maybe the leadership group was gonna do it, but they didn't wanna touch it. And so when the county picked it up, the county had the cost study that knew that a precise percentage of people in our community was costing half a billion dollars, and those were their clients. So what if they put a bond to solve for their people, not everybody else housing, solve for the county? Beautiful, because what that meant was it was going to be for the most vulnerable. And I will tell you that there were so many times during that campaign that people said it wouldn't work, that it couldn't just be for homelessness, that there were campaigns to peel off and successful ones to peel some money away from the poorest people. The way that that was looked at, the way that supportive housing was dismissed, the way the developers were upset, that it was like, I felt like we were in a war, in a war to hold on for the poorest people. But supervisor, Chavez and the rest of the soups did that was amazing was they baked all of it into the ballot. And that has proven since to be the only thing made that unshakable. And, and because it was like this much money and this is what it's for. And this is who it's for, which meant it can't be picked off. But going through that campaign and seeing how much energy there was to shift higher incomes was just, um, one of the most, I, I mean, obviously I was very angry, of course, I'm very angry, but also so disheartening, right? But the beauty of it, right, was this campaign did bring all these people together. Everyone, by the time it was finally like off to the races, people were on board with what it was, right? Because once it was kind of, this is what's going to go on the ballot, then it was just go time. And then people coalesced. And it was uh, an extraordinary passing with what key two three tenths of a percentage you know that year we, we thought hillary was going to win by five o'clock and measure a who knew and what a night <laughs> what and the only bright spot right was that we had this measure a bond that we didn't even know about because there's a recount we didn't even know about that for weeks right that it was such a squeaker but that gave the county now we have a pot of money and a policy framework. We didn't have that before. And then the city and the housing authority also made policy framework decisions to support it. And then we met Chuck Robbins. Aaron, when Cisco entered the picture, I mean, that was just, uh, uh, I remember hearing, hearing from Jen as that whole story was unfolding. I mean, really leading by example and starting this cascade of major private sector investment. I mean, that was a huge game changer. I'd love to hear, just talk to us kind of from your vantage point. How did this come about internally at Cisco? Um, did the employee voice uh, contribute to this? Or was this really uh, Chuck kind of coming to realization that Cisco wanted to be part of the solution? Yeah, I think it was very much the latter. Uh, this really did come from the top. And um, Chuck Robbins, became CEO in the fall of 2015. And so I think this was a little over a year into his time as CEO, where I think he started to think about social impact and what he wanted to really 
invest in. And I think he'd been with Cisco a long time, you know, knew that our CSR efforts were longstanding and that we've done a lot, but it was global in nature as we're a global company and we hadn't made big investments locally. And I think he felt like there's, there's so much wealth uh, and, and so much expertise and resources locally. And there's a massive housing crisis as well and real suffering and an opportunity for us to do something. And so I think he already had it in his mind that he wanted to do something related to homelessness. And he reached out to Mayor Licardo just in trying to find out you know, who he should talk to, how he could learn more. And Mayor Licardo put him in touch with Jen and Jen, you might be able to speak more to this, but you know, they met and I think Jen probably gave the same pitch. We need a billion dollars. And this was right after measure A had passed. And so I think the timing was right. The people were right. Uh, there was you know, this community plan in place. It was really clear what the targets were. There was measure A funding available. There was a clear I think gap and opportunity for private funding to come in to complement the public funding that was made available to be able to accelerate the development of housing. Um, and there was Destination Home and Gen Loving and this public private that was already in place that already had the right actors um, that made it really easy for us, I think, to, to come in and provide that support. And I got involved, you know, after Chuck had basically said, we're giving him $50 million, figure it out. <laughs> so, I mean, he made that commitment up front. And I think what was unique also was it wasn't just a Cisco contribution. I think he really signed up to, to take this on and to talk to his peers and to really try to mobilize the private and tech sector to get behind this and provide the support. And so I think he's been a huge champion internally within Cisco, but also in, in the tech community, promoting this, raising awareness, um, you know, always kind of beating the door of, of other CEOs, really trying to, to impress upon them the need and the opportunity. And I think this wasn't a grassroots effort, but I will say, I think it makes a big difference having your leadership really promote this and take it on the cause of it because it has been so embraced across the country. And, you know, Jen can speak to all the different teams that have reached out or provided support in different ways, volunteers helping with move-ins. And it's just, it's been really great to see because you, you have seen this start from the top and be completely embraced really at every level of the organization. Well, I would imagine too, it's not an issue anybody can deny, right? I mean, all you need to do is look at, either walk down the street and you see it, you see folks that are unhoused or just look at the cost of living and the struggle that even tech workers are having, right? In terms of trying to trying to make a living here and buy property or, or just pay rent. So certainly not something that, uh, that we can deny. I love that story and uh, appreciate you sharing that. I'm curious too, Erin, I mean, just following this, it feels like um, just this, the, his, his whole investment in Cisco really, like you said, not just writing a check, but actually getting deeply, deeply engaged. To me, it's an example of the power of cross-sector uh, collaboration, the power of, not to throw around the word collaboration, but the power of cross-sector buy-in, right? That here we have nonprofit, we have public sector, we have private sector. And I'm curious, just from your, from your vantage, Point, do you see that there's more of an appetite uh, 
for private sector investment and partnership is their trust between private sector and uh, and uh, organizations trying to do good uh, in Silicon Valley. Do you see that as perhaps a, a outcome of this partnership? I think we've definitely seen more more support towards these efforts over the last few years. I think in a lot of cases, it depends on the company or the leadership. I think the idea of public-private partnerships sound good, and they're actually really difficult um, to, to execute and to align on priorities and build that trust. Uh, I, I do think having Destination Home and this collective action effort that was well underway, all of these relationships go back over a decade, right? So there was a tremendous amount of trust built up um, and, and these actors in place and a very clear, compelling role for the private sector to play that I think has made it easier for companies to really get behind this effort. Um, but I, I think it does depend on, on the company itself. We've, we've talked to a lot over the last couple of years just about this and it, you know, perspectives really vary. Jen, I want to ask you too, was this something that you felt like you, <laughs> I think I know this, but I'm going to ask you for it. Did you have to sell Chuck on this or did you have to, or was he looking for solutions? He, I mean, he's the one who asked for the conversation. He was, I think this was, this became a thing that was weighing on him uh, emotionally and wanted to understand. And I don't think that uh, he or I uh, envisioned what what happened over the course of the two or three hours that we had that first conversation. And, um, you know, I will say it's a testimony to when people ask you, what do you need? You should tell them the truth. And I told him the truth that we needed a partner and we needed a money, a ton of money, and we needed his help. And I think I think it was appealing from a, a to Aaron's point. We had a plan and a system, and and uh, and and he saw immediately. You know, Chuck is a really cool. His instincts have been. I've always appreciated his instincts. He had. He understood homelessness pretty clearly. You know why it hadn't been solved. He understood his value, which was he could get other people to join, whether it was right or wrong. Like his validation of this would matter, right? That And that he could be an ambassador. He never wanted to be in charge or make it about them or, you know, Aaron's point, like that at the time was the, by far the most amount of money that had ever been contributed to solve homelessness, I think in the country. That was the biggest contribution. They never wanted to make it about themselves. I mean, you know, someone from Cisco joined our board. They joined our strategy which is a real testimony of uh, the lack of ego, the willingness to partner, the willingness to, to truly want to solve something. And then, you know, Erin and her colleagues have been a part of this team. Gosh, Erin, what, three years? It's going yeah. on a while. Yeah. <laughs> so we've, so we've been literally meet every week. And, and it started with the money, but it ended up leadership, policy, so much employee engagement like you really it's in a lot of ways it's like these gifts go in all these different directions you know um Pisco coming and being very um authentic and sharing their lived experience with homelessness and feeling like it was okay to have that experience at their work 
when that was never something that was ever talked about before, you know? And so, so there's been so many different, there's been so many different gifts through that, that have been separate from the money, but the willingness to contribute money freely for the government, understanding that the government, the governments are the holders of this issue, are the solvers of this issue, but that there's a value, a really valuable role for the private sector. I mean, it's modeled, I think what has come since Apple, other contributions, what has happened during this COVID and the raising money for COVID relief, all of this together. I mean, that the example, I mean, I don't know, there's been like five other $50 million gifts for some number since Cisco went first, you know, all, none of that is an accident. Right. And that at the time was insane money. Right now it's like, you've, you've kind of get your head around this kind of money, but back then, that was crazy money. Cisco was the game changer for sure in terms of leading yeah. that way, following the... Because though, it's because we, we like to make it shiny about like the tech sector, but the government officials from elected officials to like Jackie and Key and their teams being willing to do the day in, day out, grinding it out, the Office of Supportive Housing, the city of San Jose are hundreds of millions of dollars. Do you, you, you know what I mean? It's just doesn't have that same sparkle, <laughs> you know, than, than something that you don't expect when there's like this one large tech contribution. But I mean, I don't know, key, what annual budget for homelessness? I mean, it's pretty big, right? So, so recognizing that it's all together that right. makes it work. Right. And closing out here, I mean, what I'm hearing is there's a lot of key ingredients, right, to make the systems change work. I mean, some of it was luck and timing, but there's more than that. I mean, leadership matters, right? Leadership, risk take, um, being able to put yourself there. Uh, and I think what you and so beautifully is the folks that perhaps hold the power asking what they can do, not imposing what they want to do or what they think should happen, but saying, what can we do? What should we do? Uh, what are the other key ingredients here, guys, that really made this, I mean, if you could boil it down to a few words or a phrase or a, uh, what, what made this successful? Uh, we've sort of tried to answer this um, several times. Um, you know, Alameda County, some county calls, like, what did you do? And uh, e essentially for these or these types of activities to work, um, you do need the right team. And it, it, that fundamentally is the only thing that makes it work. And sometimes you get the right team because you selected people and sometimes it's just timing. You know, I think Jen and I made a good team, but we would not have succeeded if, if sort of Gary Graves hadn't been in the position that he was in, you know, um, and that if he hadn't sort of taken on this role. Yes, you know, no matter what, we need the city of San Jose's housing department as a key partner, but it doesn't matter where, uh, but that almost doesn't matter. What matters is that we have Jackie Morales Fran. So wherever Jackie Morales Fran is in the city of San Jose, that's just going to make it work. And and we constantly need to expand the team, but also reinforce sustain it because it can fracture, it can fray. And to be honest, we've only just mm. begun. We're going to continue asking people, organizations, to do more and do things differently. And we're going to ask them to do things that at the time 
seem to be against their interest. Yeah. Um, and that's the only way that we can really, you know, stem the tide and reverse this sort of history of social and racial and economic inequality. Um, um, only by disrupting or changing the power system will we be able to, to achieve that. So people are going to have to do things that, oh, my God, we can't do this. This will change everything for us. That's exactly what we're about. Jackie. I would say as you know, a, a graduate of ALF, part of that, as Key's already mentioned, it's also this relationship building, right? So it is the fact, Key and I don't always agree, but we are committed to continuing to work on this issue together. And we agree on the larger goal. And sometimes it takes one of us to remind the other what that larger goal is. And so we have to act potentially not in our best interest because it's the interest of this larger uh, work that we're engaged in that becomes most important. And so maintaining that uh, dialogue, cons a consistent dialogue is really important. And so we do meet and talk consistently to keep ourselves focused in the same uh, way. And actually COVID-19 started having our staffs meeting together. And I felt like, gee, we should start doing that a long time ago. And I, and my guess is there are very few cities and counties that are meeting weekly, just trying to solve and address this issue. Um, and so, you know, we're, it doesn't matter that we work for different institutions what we've said is the most important piece is we have to come together to solve the problem together. We have to be moving in the same direction. Um, and I would also say political will is really important. You know, the reality is on the housing, we can't set this happening if we don't have uh, leadership on our, our council, whether, you know, the mayor, uh, Raul, um, who have always consistently said, this is important, we're going to do it no matter what. Um, we need that continued leadership. So voting, as uh, we know, is important to be sure, right? That the people who represent, who have your values and who will make the difference on the political side or in the offices, sure. I think is really important as well. From a private Aaron, I mean, what are the key ingredients uh, uh, that we might uh, might look to uh, that made this a success? Well, I think a lot of those key ingredients were uh, when we came in. Um, I do think approaching this really as a partnership is is really important, um, and and coming in looking at what what role we can play and and how we can support this. I do think everyone having the same ultimate goal and just alignment at, at the highest level is is really important i think we have that but um i, I do think coming into it with the spirit you know in the spirit of a partnership we're not we're not being prescriptive we're not you know we're here also to learn i mean these here are the experts that have been doing the work for a long time so it's coming in and then figuring out how we can jen the work's not done yet right and um, what other systems need to change in order for uh, the flow of new people to stop into, uh, into homelessness? Well, first, could I answer the ingredient 
just because <laughs> because the thing that they haven't said is we we've had to be the rock against all which others will break. We will we will holding together and not yielding is what we've had to do. It really has been, you know, people talk about activism. This has been activism, right? It's 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 been through determination and muscle, right? And producing results. Uh, so that has been cool. Um, what else has to change? Prison system, foster care system, SSA, social services, universal basic income, uh, how we're changing zoning. Uh, so many things have to change. Like we have described this amazing story and we have one of the largest populations of people still on our streets. So it's like we've done this amazing thing and it's nowhere near enough, you know, and and if anything, COVID has been a reminder, right, uh, of, of how much more there is to go. Do you feel like you've been successful? I'm never satisfied. I'm never, I never feel like we've done a, certain times you think that was good, that we did a good thing, you know, measure A or opening projects, but not when there are people, until everyone's home, um, we're not successful. Let's do this. How many people have been housed post uh, measure A? Since 2015, we've housed almost 15,000 people permanently. Amazing. I want to thank the four of you today for the ALF dialogue. What, a, what an inspiring story and uh, so timely in that are being disrupted here uh, in so many ways with COVID and racial tensions in our country and uh, so many layers of the onion are being pulled, you know, pulled away right now. And we have an opportunity to build things better and do things differently. Thanks for leading the way. Appreciate you all. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org. Dot org.